Hello friends, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a literary podcast that explores Stephen King's work with a slightly more academic lens. Hello guys and gals, and welcome to the show. This is an extra, extra special episode that is most definitely a deviation from our usual underrated titles, as this, you may see, this giant is definitely not an underrated King work, but perhaps one of Stephen King's most iconic, celebrated, discussed, analyzed, compared novels ever, ever, ever. And perhaps uh, amongst you, there may be a bit of head scratching going on in regards to what in the actual heck is happening that this book of all the books is now an episode, but this was definitely one of those moments where Kim C was coerced into the deep end of the pool by some friends because she certainly would not go by herself. Heavens no. (laughs) This is a bunch of friends throwing rocks at my windowsill, so I sneak out in the middle of the night. Uh, This, guys, is a collaborative work. This novel is a joint effort with my friends and fellow podcast hosts Jess and Kendra from Palaver Unraveling Weird Lit. A few months back, we connected and decided to tackle Rose Matter as a trio, 1995's Rose Matter, and we did some really fun episodes on that mega intriguing, wacky, very disturbing, Greek mythology filled, and yet still very unsettling novel. And we had such a good time. Oh my gosh, guys, I had such a good time. And I realized that because I was reading Rose Matter with both of them in mind, the novel uh, as an assignment felt like a group project. Ergo, I did feel slightly less awful when I was trudging through the really icky parts of the villain Norman Daniels and all of his hellish terror. He is, oh my god guys, he's grotesque and if you've read it, you know because my guys, that man is a rabie-infested, I mean not literally, but he acts like it. He's a maniac, truly He leaves such a bloody mess in his wake, and a lot of the parts, a lot of the misogyny and the violence against women was very hard to stomach, but knowing I was in a group effort to pull the plow with Justin Kendra really, really helped. So, folks, uh, Kim C was, uh, just a few days ago making her way down the dusty path of 2021. I was on schedule to crack open drawing of the free, f- drawing, <laughs> drawing of the three. I don't know if drawing of the free is perhaps a fan art novel. I don't know. Anyway, drawing of the three. I was getting it going on track when Jess and Kendra reached out and they're like, hey, Kim C, let's get together. And by the way, we're doing misery. And (laughs) I must say, folks, um, when I heard this, my heart sank a little bit because if at any time you've listened to past episodes of the show, you know that 
this particular novel, friends, this particular one, I'm scared to death of. I have never, up until this last week, read Misery in my life. Never, ever. And I think I've been subconsciously and rather actively avoiding it because I have been so scared of what's inside. And this novel, I, as I've kind of mentioned in other places, for whatever reason, the novel Misery is peculiarly, is that a word? I don't know. Well, let's just say it's deeply ingrained in my childhood because I think I may have brought this up once or twice in other episodes. I don't remember which ones, but my father, who's the best guy ever, he's a huge King fan. And when I was born in the 80s, he was on a real King bender. And let's just say there were dozens of hardback Kings in my home growing up, particularly one from 1987 called Misery and my dad had the 1987 hardcover and I so you guys know the one right the American hardcover please google it if you don't because this is my childhood guys so on the front cover art it's this amazing sort of color painted illustration of this man in a wheelchair. I, I'm a little girl, so I don't know who these people are. Uh, this man is in a wheelchair looking very forlorn in the background. And then in the foreground, there's this menacing silhouette of a figure not yet known as Annie the Psychopathic Monster Wilkes holding an axe. And I remember, guys, as a five, maybe six-year-old, playing with my toys near my parents' bookshelf. I used to love to take out the CD little cases and click them open, play around, being a kid, and I would always pull the books out, and I was mesmerized by that cover art, guys. I always pulled it off the shelf, traced my finger on all the pictures, and my little brain was connecting things, forming synapses, that this was something very scary. And I remember asking my dad about the book and he would just tell me, you know, passively, it's a scary book, put it back, scary book. So guys, I have visceral childhood associations with this book that it was scary and something that my dad deemed uh, frightening. And for whatever reason, as I grew older and then asked my dad as an adult about the novel, he just quoted to me, after a long beat of silence, which I look back in retrospect as like, oh my god, my dad had no idea how much that beat of silence spoke volumes, but he just looked at me and he said, it's pure terror. And because of that, friends, you know, I, the years went by and uh, I did not pursue this book. There was not any part of me that wanted to rebel against it and be like, ooh, I want to read it. It's scary. Nope. I went the exact opposite. So I got into school and learning the craft of fiction. So of course, King was not a part of that until much, much later. I was observing other authors who authors who were not king and uh yeah this book definitely fell down the cracks and especially when i started getting into the underrated titles it fell even further down um and i had zero desire to read it guys absolute zero 
but <laughs> enter the Jess and Kendra bat signal, <laughs> I confronted this novel after 30 years of either completely forgetting about it as well as actively sidestepping around it and totally avoiding it. And I went for it, guys. And I had to. I couldn't let Justin Kendra down. And oh, I was such a fan of how good it felt trekking through Rose Matter, knowing that, okay, I'm not alone on this journey. And while I'm freaking out over here, I know there are two other ladies probably dropping some F-bombs in the same spot over some the same shocking details. And so while I was working through Rose Matter, it provided an immense amount of relief. So yes, every now and again, Kim C will break podcast protocol and embrace a more commercial king title out of necessity because A, I haven't read it yet and need to, and B, it's a collaborative effort with a group of podcasters who I want with all my heart to support. So this title this episode, friends, is done in the spirit of mutual goodwill among nations. So I love the work Justin and Kendra are doing, and we have such a good time chatting King books. So I'm happy to tackle this novel knowing they're reading it with me because no way in hell would I have picked this up by myself, guys. Nope. Nope. And this is because, of course, you know, other than the fact that I'm 1000% uh, terrified of it, but at present, the underrated King works have a higher priority for me, and uh, what can I say? I'm sensitive to prolonged terror, and given what I knew about this novel, it's nonstop torturous agony from start to finish. So yes, the only way this book would have ever got read is if there was a huge amount of cash at the other end, <laughs> or um, I, I shame I sh I will shamelessly admit that uh, money is a motivator. <laughs> I think it is for all of us. So don't even. But um, it was either going to be a huge stack of cash, or if I was in a group setting. I love being on teams. I, I love helping a group and the group came to me and I followed along gladly knowing I wasn't headed into misery by myself. So once more, my dear listeners, I've finished it. <laughs> I've done it. I made it through. Uh, it took me a little over a week because there were points where I just had to stop and let the shock and pain roll off me. But I must say, my guys, uh, this one was really hard for me to keep reading. I know I've said that about other books, but I had no idea what that even meant until Misery, guys. So the first 150 pages, I was dialed in, I was making notes, I was asking questions, I was admiring the writing, I was forming connections, and then right around the 150 page mark. I think it's right around the part with Annie and the dead rat, if you guys remember. Right around there, I was like, okay, this needs to be done. I can't take this anymore. I am so, I'm done. I'm so emotionally exhausted. 
we I can't do this. I'm ready to just speed this up. I let's hit the gas because my heart is wrung out. I am so grieved for Paul in this beyond awful, this unbearable existence. So I hit the wall, guys, at 150 pages in and was devastated, devastated when I realized I was only at the halfway point. And my guys, I am being totally honest, I nearly cried. I, I nearly cried. I really did. And I, I don't think I've had that kind of reaction halfway through to a king book. Never this bad. Uh, so looking back on the rough ones, Bag of Bones really messed me up. If you jump if you jump back to that episode, you can hear me nonstop <laughs> pontificate on my horror. But the horror of that novel only hit toward the very end. The trauma, although immense, although very hard to digest, didn't pop up until the end. Whereas this, guys, oh my god. Guys, this was too much. This was too much. Oh my god. Uh, too much? All caps? A thousand exclamation points. Too much. Um, there is much to admire, of course. We're going to get into that. There is much to discuss. But holy god, dear listeners, this took some sheer will and determination to get through because it felt if there's any like endurance athletes out there or anybody who like jogs for fun you know I I don't know imagine just having zero energy you're dead and you've got miles to go miles to go before you can get home never mind a race you can't get home um yeah that's how it felt Uh, I was so tired, so grieved, so exhausted of the pain and suffering and fear and psychological mind games of dealing with this monster and the metaphors of being locked in a cage. The loss of hope, my friends. And, oh, guys, there were parts where I just wanted Paul to swallow all the Novril he had stashed under the mattress and end it all. And then... Strangely, there were times when I just wanted him to keep fighting, keep trying, keep hoping, keep doing whatever he could to figure it out and outsmart this evil bitch and not give up and just realize that life is worth fighting for. But guys, we just, we went so far off the edge, over the edge, into death, into hell. (laughs) I was back and forth and back and forth and back and forth of wanting Paul to just die and put himself out of his suffering, his literal misery, just just die and, and keep fighting. And by page 150, guys, I was like, I'm done. I'm out. I can't and uh, had a very difficult realization and kind of had like a little heart to heart with myself where I sat down and I was like, how the heck am I gonna do this? How am I going to do this? 
so this has never happened to me before guys i i can't recall i this book was i mean i we've had some rough ones thus far in the podcast um bag of bones was hella rough as well as honestly everyone loves it but long walk sucks dude like long walk is depressing af that is such a dark awful sad terrible holocaust of a novel and i don't love it as much as others do that was a, that was a challenge to keep going with but this book guys this is the most unique king book i have ever read up until this point because it was fighting me it was fighting me to get read it kept pushing me back it kept pushing me away and i had to grit my teeth and keep at it for Justin Kendra because they were counting on me but I swear guys if it weren't for Justin Kendra I would have slammed this thing shut and shelved it because no effing way it was going to kill me it was truly hell to get through because I hadn't even got to the axe part friends I hadn't even got there and I had seen parts of the movie so I knew something really bad was coming but I hadn't even got to the axe part and I felt as if I was already dead. I was already dead and rotting away in Paul's room right next to him just decomposing on the floor because we as the reader are trapped with Paul. We can't get out either. And that's the brilliance of this book, guys. The masterfulness of what King has created here in terms of reader environment, reader experience. It's unforgettable but it's also the most extreme novel i've ever encountered in my life and i see why it's talked about all the damn time i get it i totally get it and later in this episode i'm gonna unpack all my feelings on this 300 page walk through the gates of doom but before we get started i wanted to highlight a few important timeline things I learned about Misery. So this novel was released in 1987 after drawing of the three and followed by the Tommyknockers. So King has said regarding Tommyknockers, it's not a good novel, at least in its entirety. Certain parts he's okay with, but there was a lot of substance used during the construction of that book. And because of that, the story suffered quite a bit. And um, not to go too much on Tommyknockers, but from what I hear from other King readers, it's agreed upon as being kind of a hot mess and all over the place. But I bring up Tommyknockers because it was the last substance-infused novel, and it seems like Misery is in that mix at the tail end of the not-sober, definitely not-sober novels. And so King says Misery is written at the end of what he calls an approximate almost a solid decade of not only extreme alcohol consumption, that was probably a decade in addition to this one, but a, a full almost 10 years of continual cocaine use, which blows my mind how his body was able to withstand that, but also that he accomplished so much with a body and brain just put through the ringer. But that's another topic altogether. That's definitely another chat for another day. So yes, um, it seems as though Misery, Drawing of the Three, and Tommyknockers, um, 
I think it's specifically quoted that Tommyknockers was the last King novel to be written with drugs and alcohol in his system. And so having now finished Misery, I can completely observe, my friends, it's my understanding that Misery is a novel that really mirrors, quite completely mirrors the pain and suffering and selfishness as well as powerlessness of not only drug addiction but surviving drug addiction. So more on that in a little bit. But before we head deeper into Breaking Down Misery, I wanted to highlight two articles that were really illuminating when it comes to King's issues with substances. I know there's several reports on this that he's given throughout the years, but One that I really like is a Rolling Stone article published in 2014, and this is right around the time Revival was released, so lots of cool questions surrounding that awesome novel. Please read it if you haven't and jump back to my episode on Revival if you haven't heard it yet. But the main character in that novel, Jamie Morton, is a heroin addict, and so the Rolling Stone interviewer does go there with King, and he asks... I'm trying to comprehend how you lived this whole secret life of a drug addict for eight years, all the while churning out bestsellers and being a family man. And King says, Well, I can't comprehend it now either, but you do what you have to do, and when you're an addict, you have to use. So you just try to balance things out as best you can. But little by little, the family life started to show cracks. I was usually pretty good about it. I was able to get up and make the kids breakfast and get them off to school, and I was strong. I had a lot of energy. I would have killed myself otherwise. But the books start to show it after a while. Misery is a book about cocaine. Annie Wilkes is cocaine. She was my number one fan. Oh my gosh, guys, that is so huge. Friends, that is so huge, and it really helped me observe Annie Wilkes in an entirely different way during the worst and more deplorable parts of this hellish book. Um, But there's also another article I liked. This is from a website called The Fix, which is about recovery from addiction. But in the article, this, or in this particular article um, of King's quote, monster addiction, he says, I didn't just have a problem with beer and cocaine. I was an addictive personality, period. I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. I loved Listerine, I loved NyQuil, you name it. If it would change your consciousness, I was all for it. And so this article is actually quoting a biography called Haunted Heart, but I don't know if it was an authorized biography. Therefore, let's take it with a grain of salt. But that does sound believable, um, as well as particularly king truth so we'll uh we'll say it's true i i do think it's it's on the true side for sure um i'm just not a thousand percent sure on whether or not that was an authorized king biography but um another area of the fix article that i really liked was this quote this is the last one 
As King's successes mounted, so too did his problems. Addiction began to inform his writing process in all the same ways that the big block letters of Stephen King virtually guaranteed a best-selling book. Ironically, for an author whose bread and butter came from tapping into other people's fears, his own greatest fear was not being able to write without being under the influence. Since drinking had been in the background during his early successes, King assumed it was the magic ingredient. So once more, I'm unsure of how much of that is true, but it is worth speculating about as there is a lot one can observe from that, guys, just to kind of... Uh, when it comes to like exploring what we're going to explore in misery, um, looking at King's personal history you know, even though we don't have the whole story, it does bring a lot of clarity and perhaps compassion to what might be going on under the surface in this man's mind, um, as well as what he might have been going through in terms of these characters he's bringing to life, this inner struggle, the turmoil. But Misery, guys, is a novel that explores suffering, survival, all the stages of grief, and when you insert the addiction element, even more gets unlocked. So there's lots and lots to explore within these novels where we know King is just typing while he's totally coked out. I know that we can explore lots of stuff with those, but this one, guys, this misery is huge. Misery is a huge one where I think we as the reader really confront addiction, King's addiction, full on. So we're going to talk about that a lot here coming up. But before I in introduce how I'm going to break down the novel, friends. I do have to include this very direct PSA, this very strong teacher recommendation from me to you. Oh my gosh, guys, I must encourage if you are going to read Misery, either you're going to reread it, uh, which why would you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but really not. Um, actually, I'm not kidding. Like, why would you ever read this book again? But, um, or if you're like myself reading it for the very first time, just, uh, these past few days, please make sure you have a physical copy of the book to read guys. It is very important. Please make sure you read a physical copy of the book. So if you've only listened to it on audiobook, you need to go back and reread the physical book because my guys, this book, this novel is a very impressive piece of visual art. Oh my goodness, I swear. So if you guys heard in my Duma Key episode, I'm super duper hyping the American hardcover for Duma Key because there's real illustrations of the various elements throughout the novel and you need it. You need these illustrations to bring the novel to life. It is so magical, but you need to read and you need to see with your eyeballs what King does with the art inside Misery, guys, specifically the textual art 
the actual text is art. So we have a typewriter that is really at the forefront of this story. It's almost a character in itself. And this typewriter is broken. So there are missing letters interjected and the missing letters are handwritten in by not only Paul, but Annie. And we also have handwritten passages, which I don't know if it's King's own hand or whose hand it is. We also have word processor passages. And because this novel has large parts inside the mind of Paul, because we as the reader are navigating through his descent into madness, there are lots and lots and lots of italicized areas, lots of misspellings. There's a ton of emphasis on the text, guys, and all of these, all of it adds more and more layers of meaning and analysis. And friends, I just can't recommend this highly enough. Please make sure you have a physical copy of Misery to read. It's a must. It's a must. It's a must. And if you haven't read the physical book, please thumb through it. If you've only read or listened to the audiobook and haven't joined the two in forces, it's an absolute necessity. And I'm so, so glad I read a physical copy of the book. Highly, highly essential. So now that that's out of the way, in this episode, we're going to do a traditional breakdown, much like in my previous episodes. We're going to have a section on heroes, villains, and honorable mentions, where we talk about our dueling main characters, Paul and Annie, as well as someone else who connects them both together. And after that, we're going to look at the unique elements I spied within this book. Um, Some of them may be a bit of a reach, but we're going to talk some connections, some observations, and my thoughts on why misery is a dark fairy tale. And from there, we'll transition to what's working in this novel, what's not working so well, and questions I have from the story because there are a few I feel would have made Paul's story richer and more, uh, well, stronger, that's for sure. And lastly, lastly, I had to, I just had to do it, I have to report on the 1990 Rob Reiner directed film Misery starring Kathy Bates and James Caan. I just had to because you just have to, I just have to. So we got to talk about it. I'm going to share my thoughts. And uh, yeah, um, before we head into the other sections, I was going to write a quick summary on what Misery is about, but then... I just realized it's probably not necessary because I don't care who you are, you know what this book is about. Even if you've never read a King book, you know, you know what this is about. You know. And if you don't, go ahead and type it into your nearest search engine for a brief description about this best-selling novelist and his number one fan. Okay, guys, deep breath. Let's unclench our jaw. All right, my guys, I did it. (laughs) I climbed Everest. I read Misery. I'm ready to talk about it. Let's crack open this 1987, 310-page, pure hellfire of a novel and go for it. And channeling her royal evilness, come on, you dirty birds, let's get this cock-a-doody show on the road.
Hi guys, thank you for sticking around. I did forget to mention in the previous section how I'm going to do my very best to avoid too many spoilers, but I'm afraid I might not do the best job of that, friends, mostly because this is an iconic King story. This is highly commercialized. It's definitely not underrated, that's for sure. This is one of the powerhouse King novels that is celebrated and talked about and always in the spotlight. Ergo, if you want to remain spoiler free or if you haven't read the actual novel of misery or seen the film go ahead and press pause on this for a later time because i don't want to ruin this novel for you if it's been a while and maybe you're hoping for a reread definitely save this one for after you're freshly completed with the book because i think you'll enjoy it a little bit more all right just putting that out there so as I was compiling my notes together on Misery, I realized that I wanted to sandwich the unique elements portion and characters within the same space because they're all kind of wound and interconnected together because as you would guess, we're all locked in the same room with them for the entire novel. So I think it's kind of fitting that we combine them in another claustrophobic squeeze, but then I realize I just have too much. I just have too many chunks, so we're gonna break it up anyway. So in this section, we're gonna discuss the unique elements I observed in the text. I wanted to share a few with you. I have three of them. So we're gonna kick it off with our first one that I'm calling Misery is a Dark Fairy Tale. Alright guys, so with fairy tales, we're gonna set the ground rules straight away right now because when I mention fairy tales, I am not thinking of connotations with once upon a time and happily ever after. Nay, those are Disney. Those are wonderful, sunny, happy, rainbow sprinkles Disney. But when I mention fairy tale, I'm talking the guys who brought the pain 300 plus years ago. Those guys, you know them, the brothers Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen, Charles Perrault, as well as the dark, spooky, ancient myths and legends that inspired them to write down these stories. So if you guys are familiar, those guys brought some absolutely tragic and terrifying tales that are far from the Disney versions. But I bring them up to you now so you remember that these stories served mostly as strong warnings. So if you guys have ever read the original versions of Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood, The Little Mermaid, these myths contained terrifying lessons to teach people children especially, to obey and take the moral path instead of the impulsive one, to do the right thing, be aware of their surroundings, honor thy father and mother, know the dangers and treachery of nature as well as the dark hearts of others. And if they didn't, if they wandered into the woods, if they lied, stole, played pranks, they were punished for their misbehavior. And that punishment was a monster in the woods, an unknown evil fate waiting to eat them up and rip them limb from limb and bake them into a pie and spit out their bones. 
So once more, if you examine the real versions of these fairy tales, uh, Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen, the, oh my god, you guys, blood-soaked, blood-soaked they are. It's, oh my god, especially Little Red Riding Hood. Completely tragic, and they are this way because there is a warning to be heeded. With disobedience comes punishment, and I couldn't help but think about that as the novel Misery opened. So once more, we're in Colorado, and we have 42-year-old Paul Sheldon, who is on a total high of godlike accomplishment. He is feeling himself. He is literally popping the champagne. Just finished a novel that's taken him two years to complete, and it wasn't a misery novel. It's something totally unique and awesome. He is single, wealthy, talented, pretty handsome, flying high, guys. And what does he do? Takes it too far. Paul orders not one, but two bottles of champagne and decides to live it up, decides YOLO before there was YOLO, and he hops in the car like a selfish fool. And he doesn't care who may be at risk, who he might harm. He's just, nope, convinced that this selfish act of driving while intoxicated is totally without consequence because he's Paul Sheldon. He's in control. The world is on his side. No worries. No worries. And then he crashes his car into the unknown woods of Sidewinder when the storm sneaks up on him out of nowhere. And lo and behold, he has landed smack dab in the middle of where all evil comes to roost in King's World, he really crashes into a wall of consequence and Paul becomes a victim to the monster, the monster in the woods, the unknown terror in a wooden cabin of Sidewinder, Colorado. And this monster is waiting to eat up the naughty boys and girls who go too far who disobey, who don't take the wise path, but the foolish one. And doesn't this feel like a dark warning, guys? I know it might come across as a bit rudimentary, but I can't help but make this connection that Paul's selfishness and recklessness leads him into the trap of the monster in the woods, the monster who eats the children, or the old witch who cooks the children, and they never go home again. Annie Wilkes is that beast of the forest waiting for someone to devour, and Paul serves himself up to her on a silver platter because this is the man who is self-absorbed, self-involved, perhaps a bit of a megalomaniac, or completely saturated by his own greatness, and he drunkenly foolishly, carelessly, recklessly, is like a naughty child in the fairy story. The bad children get punished. The beast ensnares them, eats them, they get gobbled up and never seen again. So within Misery, there are multiple parts within this book that connect me to German fairy stories straight away, where the woods are deep and dark, very much like the real black forest of Germany, and those who venture in face grave danger or they're just never seen again. So there's a part in the novel when Paul, one of the few times he does manage to escape 
for a few precious moments from the room, he sees the house. This is actually one of my favorite uh, descriptive parts of the novel. It's so powerful and rich. The house is scattered with the remains of basically Annie's binge eating of a depressive episode and there's just a disgusting mess of leftover cake, cookies, pies, ice cream, everything is sticky and dripping and crumb covered. And for those of you who remember Hansel and Gretel, the evil witch who kidnaps Hansel and Gretel has a house made of candy and gingerbread and she fattens up the children with sweets, she uh, locks them in a cage before baking them alive uh, or something like that. <laughs> I forget, but they, they get thrown in an oven if I remember correctly. But the iconic axe that Annie wields is right out of Little Red Riding Hood where the hunter chops open the wolf to free Little Red Riding Hood who got eaten along with her grandmother, I believe. But that one, super bloody, very graphically violent. Granted, there's a giant rabbit hole one can go down with all the correlations in between this story and other fairies, fairy stories, but I could not help but view Misery as a dark fairy tale where the selfish actions of Paul, Paul as Icarus flying too high toward the sun in arrogance and foolishness, led him to the harsh consequences of the monster in the woods, the monster that is Annie Wilkes. And while in other King stories, I think King yields the cruel hand of fate from the very beginning. We see this really hard in Duma Key, Revival, Bag of Bones, where our main narrator is stepping into sort of a predestined doom sinkhole. And we only really see it all at the very end when the hand of doom just takes over. But for me, guys, Misery does not do that. Misery seems like a warning tale. Uh, this is not a doom hand of fate kind of thing. This is a warning story that is basically saying to the reader, this is where your vices will lead you, so to speak maybe think about it this is where all the feel-good nights and days of invincibility will put you i feel like king is kind of saying in a way with this horrific scenario that overindulgence uh, to such a degree is always a dead end a dark end a tragic end and here are the consequences to destroying your mind destroying your body and destroying the people who love you with your choices and look what happens they've it's now unraveled it's got out of control and there are consequences so this may be reaching a little bit because you know of course we can't just overlook the horrifically terrible criminal actions of Annie Wilkes, but for me, she is a, a monster, an irredeemable villain. More on that later, but I, I think it, 
I think this works. I think this works as a dark fairy tale because with our opener, Paul Sheldon is not some sweet, caring, socially conscientious man cautiously making his way on the road to make a copy of his manuscript. He's not driving the speed limit and using his turn signal. No, this guy has open bottles of champagne rolling around, guys. He's chain-smoking, he's not stopping, he's blasting the music, and he's just... Uh, the storm, he's not slowing down, and the visibility have decreased. He just thinks he's too cool for school. He's in control, it's all good, nothing can touch him because he's young, alive, rich, talented, all of those things. And this kind of maybe gives me a little peek that maybe the guy behind the typewriter, Mr. King, may have thought this about himself, potentially. Maybe he was too cool for sobriety. Uh, not drinking and not using was normal people stuff, and he's got everything under control until he doesn't. The car crashes. One way or another, it crashes. So there is a lot of good stuff with the structure of this novel, guys. For me, I read it as dark fairy tale, adult fairy tale. Um, Paul makes a bad choice because his habits become destructive and Annie is the punishment. She is waiting in the woods like the dark monster or the evil witch. She is the bear trap covered up with leaves that you're just gonna step in. And she is also, as we will examine in the next section, judge, jury, and executioner. And I think it works. I don't know. Let me know if you guys think it works. Uh, number two of unique elements is narrative structure. So what's so compelling about Misery, right away guys, for me, I was absolutely blown away on page one, is because immediately King puts us in the clutches of the villain. King does not create a linear narrative where it's happy sunshine and we get to know Paul, we see him in his New York life a little bit, uh, we maybe get a scene where he's a little rowdy in the hotel lobby and then he heads into the storm and then crashes, meets Annie. Nope. On page one, there are truly terrific descriptions of being dazed, afraid, confused, the body in peril, the body in pain, and then there is something very physically distasteful, repelling, gross, foreboding, ominous, and it's the literal breath of Annie Wilkes being shoved, pushed into Paul's lungs. And I love this, guys. I love that right away, immediately, King puts us in two creepy yet significant spots where we don't, we do not escape from these spots the entire book. Number one, he puts us in the midst of excruciating pain. On page one, the reader is in pain with Paul. And on the very last page, we're still in pain with Paul. It's incredibly well done how pain is the life jacket that's tightly wound around us at all times. Non-stop physical pain for the entire novel. The second place he puts us is in immense fear. We're afraid. We're powerless. We're just as confused with Paul, realizing we can't escape. We are just beneath 
metaphorically, albeit uh, physically sometimes and literally in this novel, this lumbering presence who frightens us, disgusts us. We want to flee from this person ASAP. All of our animal instincts are firing to get away, to run, fear and pain. We're dropped right in the center of those on page one and right away, right away guys, this is what I love about this story even though I don't want to love it because it's such a rough story, but there is so much to love. We as the reader, we know we're in trouble. We know we are screwed on page one. We know this is bad. There's zero questions about it and neither is there any question guys and this is what's also compelling. There is zero question that Annie is bad or that she is anything other than the villain. And I love how this novel starts like a hard door slam, guys. It's loud and abrupt and we're thrown into this mess. And that's what makes this novel quite the experience. It's completely unique. And at least up until now in my King reading. If there is anything that can match Misery, please let me know because, oh my god, if you go back and reread Misery, what I encourage you to do is notice how the first few pages begin and notice how you as the reader have no warning, no sunny introduction, no lubricant, <laughs> nothing guys. Nope. Terror and fear together on page one and nonstop until the end. And even then, if you're with me, at the end, you're just on your couch clutching a pillow and staring off into nothingness, thinking about the dark depths you've been dragged to with Paul. And if either of you are ever going to see the light again, dramatic but legitimate. So narrative structure was incredibly impressive for me in this, guys. And uh, once more, as I mentioned in the introduction, please, please, please get a physical copy of this novel to read. It's a must. It is a requirement. The wordplay and font changes and artistic lettering really adds a lot to Paul's story. So if you've only done it on audiobook, please rent or purchase a copy of Misery ASAP. So third and lastly in our unique element section, I'm calling it the madness of survival. So I think one of the reasons why this book is so challenging and so terrifying on so many levels is because it taps into various human fears that perhaps many of us have. Uh, torture, for all of you Saw movie fans out there, my goodness. Uh, claustrophobia, that's a rough one. Confinement, but also insanity. And so I don't know about you, but losing my mind is very frightening to me, downright terrifying. Um, when I was in school, we read a story uh, very famous called The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and I was scared to my soul, and all the English majors in the house know what I'm talking about. But without deviating too much, there is a lot of madness and mental illness explored in classic literature, especially towards women, and what's sad is a lot of these women weren't mad at all. Uh, more on that later. But one of the reasons I highly suggest getting 
getting a physical copy of Misery to read through is to allow yourself to see how Paul's hope to survive, his will to survive, and Paul's sanity are kind of two sides of a constantly flipping coin. So the mind games he's forced to play with Annie to placate her to not hurt him to another coin flip and then we're dealing with her psychosis as a means of survival day after day, week after week, month after month. It's excruciating and we do this long walk most definitely with Paul's sanity. And in addition to all that, he has this daunting task of contrived creativity, of an absolute forced story, a novel he has to cook up while fading in and out of consciousness, in and out of excruciating pain. So Paul wants to erupt, he wants to explode, but he has to play the game. He has to make nice and be sweet and think of a way to write Misery's story so it's, quote, true. And in that placation, we are watching Paul die, specifically his brain. He's losing it, guys. And as readers of Misery, as you're making your way through the narrative, notice how the sanity and the survival are at times not really working together as the survival is requiring that he let go of that mental rope an inch at a time and it's devastating to see. So what's awesome about the novel, and this is the last I'm going to mention it, but I just can't shut up about getting a physical copy, is that you can see this in the work, guys. You really can. The actual words and the italics and the thoughts that he has about Annie and about finding the quote hole in the paper, which is a huge, huge, ugh, a mental oasis for our poor suffering Paul, um, where his mind goes when he's forced to write Misery's Return. It's fascinating stuff as King is basically telling the reader, in order to get through this, it's going to take everything you have, really. The price of surviving the price of potentially conquering drug addiction in our is our metaphor here is higher than you can imagine and we definitely see this on the final page of the novel i'm going to talk about that a little bit later in our last section but this theory of the high price and that pound of flesh to quote shakespeare um the merchant of venice i believe uh the high price I can't help but think I have a theory for the high price concerning a very controversial scene in the final chapters of it, but I'm gonna save that for another time because that would be a five hour episode in itself. But the madness of survival is explored so thoroughly in this novel, guys. We have the sheer human will of Paul's body trying to function despite all the shock and trauma and violence that it undergoes. And then we also have his creative self, this talent that is clinging to story, to crafting fiction in whatever way it can to keep Paul from self-harming or going completely asylum worthy. 
And then in between both of these is Paul as a logical minded human hanging on by a thread. So these three parts of self, we see all of them guys and it's so fascinating. And what King puts in front of the reader to dissect is messy, but it's the most psychologically human, vulnerable, sad, intriguing, fascinating character ordeal. And we weather it with him, which is an amazing reader experience. And whew, okay. So before we head into our next chunk, I do have a sample from the novel that I feel illustrates the survival madness quite well. This is from page 220 in the American hardcover. He hadn't died, hadn't slept, but for a while after Annie hobbled him, the pain went away. He had only drifted, feeling untethered from his body, a balloon of pure thought rising away from its string. Oh shit, why was he bothering? She had done it, and all the time between then and now had been pain and boredom and occasional bouts of work on a stupidly melodramatic book to escape the former two. The whole thing was meaningless. Oh, but it's not. There's a theme here, Paul. It's the thread that runs through everything, the thread that runs so true. Can't you see it? Misery, of course. That was the thread that ran through everything, but true thread or false, it was so goddamn silly. As a common noun, it meant pain, usually lengthy and often pointless. As a proper one, it meant a character and a plot, the latter most assuredly lengthy and pointless, but one which would nonetheless end very soon. Misery ran through the last four or maybe it was five months of his life. All right. Plenty of misery, 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 day in and misery day out, but surely that was too simple, surely. Oh no, Paul, nothing is simple about misery, except that you owe her your life, such as that may be because you turned out to be Scheherazade after all, didn't you? Again, he tried to turn aside from these thoughts, but found himself unable. The persistence of memory and all that, Hacks just want to have fun. Then an unexpected idea came, a new one which opened a whole new avenue of thought. Would you keep overlooking, because it's so obvious, what you keep overlooking, sorry. What you keep overlooking, because it's so obvious, is that you were also Scheherazade to yourself. He blinked, lowering his head and staring stupidly out into the summer he had never expected he would see. Annie's shadow passed and then disappeared again. What was true? Scheherazade to myself, he thought again. If so, then he was faced with an idiocy that was utterly colossal. He owed his survival to the fact that he wanted to finish the piece of shit Annie had coerced him into writing. He should have died but couldn't, not until he knew how it all came out. Oh, you're fucking crazy. You sure? No, he was no longer sure. Not about anything. With one exception, his whole life had hinged and continued to hinge on misery. He let his mind drift. The cloud, he thought. Begin with the cloud. Oh my gosh, guys, love it. And in that passage alone, we have so many italicies. We have, oh, there's all kinds of 
uh, hanging metaphors and illusions that he inserts throughout. I'm going to talk about that in our fourth section. So, so much good stuff to cover. All right, before we head into our next section, let's recap our unique elements. Number one, misery is a dark fairy tale. Number two, narrative structure. I am very impressed. And number three, the madness of survival. All right, friends, let's head deeper into the sidewinder snow of Annie's cabin and talk about our characters. dirty birds thank you for sticking with me let's head into our character section where we're going to talk about the misery players so we're kicking it off with number one paul sheldon aka the spirit of jack torrance question mark so uh stay with me so before i start talking about the individual characteristics of paul my guys i wanted to throw this ball your way and see what you think okay so when i started reading about Paul, what I noticed and what I kind of felt as we were getting introduced to his story, not necessarily the being tortured by Annie part, but getting to know how Paul got into this pickle to begin with reminded me a lot of Jack Torrance from The Shining. And here's why. So for me, Paul is doing all the things that Jack Torrance wanted to do. Jack was a, a husband and father, and Paul is like the set-free version of him. So hear me out. Misery was published in 1987. I believe The Shining was in 77. So we have approximately a 10-year gap in terms of publishing between those novels. And when we meet Paul at the hotel in Colorado, he's in full celebration mode, guys. He's got his alcohol, he piles into his sports car, headed to California because he can, because he wants to, because he feels that invisible, or pardon me, invincible, that invincible and free. And I think Paul does what I believe Jack Torrance always wanted to do. And I don't know why. It was a very strange, like, loud sort of bell ringing. Like, this would be exactly what Jack Torrance would want. Because I couldn't help but imagine Jack being the one who grabs the double champagne bottles and just piles into the car for a wild adventure. And as I, once more, I just can't help but re-emphasize, I think Paul gets to be everything Jack wanted to. Because Jack, as the caretaker of the Overlook for that winter, has the goal in mind of finishing a novel and perhaps, you know, wealth and fame and success after. He dreamed of such a feat and getting to head west with all the bubbles and celebration all around him, it just... 
Paul does it in his place and then crash because poor choices meet your consequences. And uh, one of my favorite expressions, a lot of people at work use this one, (laughs) stupid games win stupid prizes and the monster in the woods will come to collect. But ergo, guys, I don't know. The Paul Sheldon, Jack Torrance connection. What do you guys think? So if you are thumbing through misery and you're reading about this scene of Paul in the hotel with the manuscript and the celebration all around him, I don't know. I I know it might be reaching, but I couldn't help but imagine the two as paralleling each other in terms of who Paul actually is, which is totally free, living his life the way he wants to, with tons of writing talent, no wife, no kids, no baggage, nothing but freedom and vitality. And then he, there's Jack, and Paul is the man Jack always wanted to be, which is that wild, free guy with no one holding him back. So Paul Sheldon, in general, is 42, twice divorced, chain smoker, super successful author who does not want to head home to his penthouse in New York City, but wants to celebrate this accomplishment of a brand new novel that is not a Misery Chastain story, but something completely new and fresh and fun and he he just decides last minute to drive to California because the storm should pass him right by. So I'm going to explore this in the next section in greater detail, but Paul seems to be a very popular author due to a series of romance-esque novels. So it's difficult to say. if Paul is a romance novelist, because we are inclined to believe that Misery Chastain is a romance novel um, featuring this recurring protagonist, Misery Chastain. And Paul is very well known because of her. But here's the interesting part. Paul hates Misery Chastain, and he killed her off in the third novel, I believe. I believe there's three misery books. He kills her off by having her die in childbirth, and he was laughing when he did it. He was laughing and couldn't wait to write a much more edgy 180-degree turn from the romance genre in general. But before Paul becomes victim to Monster Annie, and 90% of this novel is Paul as victim, 10%, we as the reader see Paul as completely wild and free and really concerned with himself and himself only. So when we're with Paul as victim, as I mentioned in the last section, we see him toss that coin of survival and madness and forced creativity. And all three of those things, guys, it's fascinating. All three of those topics warp him pretty much irrevocably. And eternally by the end. Um, More on that in a little bit. But number two, Annie Wilkes. All right, without further ado, let's talk about Annie Wilkes, guys, because isn't it all about her anyway? The answer is yes. So this entire novel is the Annie show. Miss Wilkes is 44 years old and from Bakersfield, California, 
California, which if you've ever been, no, uh, nothing against Bakersfield, no insults, but uh, when I was there, there didn't seem to be much going on. Uh, kind of a sleepy place, at least um, from what I observed, and it must have been even more so referring to the time Annie came into the world, which seems to be around the 1950s or around King himself, 1947, 1948. But the Annie we mostly interact with seems like she is 100% bipolar, guys with uh, maybe a little bit of autism thrown in, just my guess. I am in no way a medical professional or a behavioral specialist. It's just a hunch. Um, but I don't believe the word bipolar was used in reference to mood disorders like hers back in the day. But Guys, this lady is mentally ill. Oh my god, all the way. Like she and of course, she's there's no diagnosis or assistance because it was the 80s and everyone solved all problems by either ignoring them or with copious amounts of alcohol and that was pretty much it. But uh Annie is a manic depressive of one of many things. But what's quickly frightening about her is that she demonstrates to the reader very quickly that she slides into these catatonic fugue states that take over and they're spontaneous without warning her entire face goes slack all the emotion drains out of her and she's a husk and then quickly flies into a rage where she causes an immense amount of pain physical pain and torture on poor Paul so what's interesting viewing Annie as a reader in 2021 versus 1987 is that I am reading this and thinking to myself yikes this lady needs help you know there is a little tiny slice of sympathy for her that is of course before she starts to torture Paul and once that starts nope no more no more slack for you death by lawnmower to you you devil woman but um there was a tiny second of sympathy empathy for her uh, sliver and then I just wish she could have been helicoptered out of the novel in a straitjacket and locked away forever, but it doesn't go down like that at all. And the crazy woman in the woods comes out in full force. And I say crazy in a genuine way. Yeah, I think it's applicable. I know that crazy is one of those things. It's, it's kind of like a, it's a hot button. Um, more on that in a little bit in terms of when we talk about mental illness, it, all that good stuff. But I think it's deserved. Uh, crazy woman in the woods. So if we want to do a really quick psych profile of Miss Wilkes, uh, there seems to have been murder on her mind from a young age. But before we get to that, uh, let's talk family. She has an older brother, coincidentally named Paul, and judging by the giant portrait of her mother in a gilded frame uh, in the Sidewinder cabin uh, Annie owns, it seems as though there was a lot of love 
for her mother, but definitely not for her father, though that remains a mystery. So the bond between Annie and her brother is also mysterious, and we don't get a lot of details if it was in its totality a good or bad relationship. But as I mentioned, Big Brother threw around the word crazy to his little sister, so there didn't seem to be a lot of warmth between them. And there is a scene Annie describes between she and her brother where she's freaking out, yelling about something, and he claps a hand over her mouth, calling her crazy. And that's the only scene with Annie and her brother that we get, so who knows? But in general, a concerning family, there seems to be a slight indication that men aren't really liked based on the small descriptions of father and brother and the fact that Annie's father ends up dead before Annie leaves for college by taking a fall on the stairs. I'm not going to reveal too much on that, but let's just say Annie's college roommate goes out pretty similarly when she moves away to school. So, I don't know if it's revealed on what happened to her mother. I don't recall, nor can I find it in the text on what may have occurred with Annie's mom, but I'm assuming, based on her adoration of her mother, that she may have either just died, um, natural causes, or Annie, quote, took care of her, perhaps real caretaking, like genuine caretaking, if she actually loved her mother. That is, until her mom potentially became a, quote, poor, poor thing, and Annie puts her out of her pain and suffering. Who knows? It is unknown. If you guys know, please flag it down for me and let me know if I missed it. But Annie pursues a nursing degree in school, works in hospitals, always jumping from town to town when the bodies start to pile up. Because we as the reader quickly learn, or rather our fears are solidified, that Annie is a bit of an angel of death based on a book of newspaper clippings that Paul thumbs through in one of his rare escape the room moments that we get in the novel. And when Paul explores this, we get a huge info dump of Annie's life. And usually in fiction, they caution you against giant info dumps, but this one works really well because we as the reader are also a caged and wounded animal right alongside Paul. And we want to know about the monster who's enslaving us. So the info dump works well, but we basically learn Annie is a uncaught serial killer. Um, shockingly for me, uh, more on this in the next section, but in 1979, Annie did marry a man named Ralph Dugan, who looked exactly like her father. So after she finished uh, nursing school, she got married, and he was in the medical field as well. And this was also quite surprising. They divorced before Annie could harm him, which blows my mind. So Annie was married to a man there for a couple years until he escaped with his life. But Miss Wilkes, from a very young age, guys, seems to have had a kind Kind of sociopathic bloodlust that came comes from a very depraved and completely cold place within her. So this place really only observes death as the only way to fix an, an irritation, an annoyance, 
you know, any way to preserve this wall of narcissism, anyone who bothered Annie was at risk of being murdered. And there's this awesome quote in here that I love where Paul comes to the realization that murder for Annie comes in, quote, three categories, brats, poor, poor things, and Annie. So I just love that quote. Um, and there's a, an ellipsis between and Annie, and it's just this, this, there's a lot there, and I love it. So either she'll kill you because you do something that just makes her enraged and she snaps, or she pities you and just takes you out so you're no longer, quote, suffering. So we don't know exactly what she does uh, because psychopaths aren't exactly overflowing with human empathy, so it's hard to say what exactly her method is. But aside from what we view from poor Paul, bless him, but um, it seems as though Annie, at the time the Misery novel opens, has sought refuge in the Colorado woods because Johnny Law is on her trail due to all of the dead bodies that have piled up around her over the years. And Paul calculates just through all of these obituaries and the news articles, there has to be 25 to 30 victims. And the Colorado vultures are circling even more now because there are dead babies. Not good, not good. So Annie the Beast has been lying low in her cave, hiding in her lair until Paul lands at her feet. And that's how I see Annie as villain, guys. Um, so when I stack her alongside the uh, <laughs> the slab of memorable king villains, she is definitely an irredeemable one. She's uh, completely memorable, horrifying, nightmarish, unforgettable. But... Uh, my friends, I have come to the conclusion I don't think Annie Wilkes can knock Big Jim Runny from under the dome off the top spot for me. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a minute, I uh, since I've read Under the Dome last spring, uh, Big Jim Runny has been haunting my every waking moment in terms of one of the most terrible, sinister king villains I've encountered. And so I keep hoping that he'll be topped. He hasn't yet. She's close. Annie's close, but no cigar. So let me explain. So with Annie, we have absolutely zero good things about her character, guys. Zilch. We get nothing good. She's menacing and 1000% evil to the core with no positive aspects of her character revealed whatsoever. And even though she commits these horrendous crimes, even though she's terrifying, sadistic, deplorable. When I line her up next to Norman Daniels from Rose Matter and Big Jim Rennie from Under the Dome and all the big bads that are human, not the supernatural ones, but human, I don't know. I would, what I do know is that because what King explores with Annie is that she is someone who is suffering from a very frightening mental illness, an uncontrollable mental illness in a way. And so because of that info, guys, because of the way she comes across this novel, for me, she seems like a wild dog who has never been tamed, like a dog with rabies. And 
you know, with a wild dog, with no other explanation on the background or who she was before she went bad, her childhood, she just needs to be put down. She just needs to be put down. She's not complex enough to knock Jim Rennie off the top spot. And I thought she could knock out Norman Daniels, who I hate, from Rose Matter. But she can't because even though I think Norman Daniels is the worst and he's a human Cujo and he's just ridiculous, even Norman Daniels has a backstory of being ultra sexually abused by his father as a child for years and years and years. So at least there are some indications of where it all went wrong. Not that it adds much to the Norman Daniels story, but still, it is something. And I I think I was convinced that, you know, reading about Annie Wilkes was going to present me a villain who was going to top all the villains, that she was just the biggest bad of them all. But she really doesn't succeed in that regard for me at this present time, at least for now, guys. Um, Perhaps I will feel differently in time once I've thoroughly rinsed the memory of this book from my mind, but uh, she's not complex enough. We need some background data on her. I need some childhood stuff aside from her just being a little, you know, a little Damien or a little um, just devil girl. You know, there, there has to be more there and I was craving more complexity to round her out a little bit. So the top spot still belongs to Big Jim Runny with Norman Daniels as a close runner up as my ultimate big bads. Granted, I'm not, you know, I'm not that far in King. I'm about 30 plus, maybe, maybe almost 35 King novels. So I got a long way to go. So if you, if I'm missing a, a terrible villain that you're like, why isn't she mentioning that? Don't worry, I'll get there soon. But for right now, in this just immediate sphere, I would hand Annie Wilkes the bronze right now. She would get the bronze in terms of horrifying King villains. Because for me, I see her as just a wild dog off the leash. She fulfills the role of monster because that's what she is. She's completely plagued with beast-like psychosis. And once more, we can't forget, guys, she is a metaphor for the destructive nature of cocaine. We can't forget that. She gives and she takes away like the powerful drug she represents. She gives Paul the uh, codeine-covered Novril capsules. She sends him careening on opiate waves day after day. But at the same time, she's literally chopping him up and slowly killing him, much like cocaine. So now that we've got our uh, main players discussed, uh, I think I got the, the bulk of it all out. I did want to mention one more for your consideration. This one's a stretch, but I want to see what you guys think. Number three. Misery Chastain. So I just felt compelled to mention this one, guys, as a character. So Misery Chastain is, of course, Paul's creation and Annie's obsession because this is the link that holds them together in this toxic vice grip. So another thing I was kind of playing around with, Misery is... I believe she could be a foil for Annie Wilkes because 
Paul hates Misery as a character. He doesn't like her at all, and as I kind of mentioned earlier, he was so giddy with laughter when he allowed Misery to die in childbirth, which is kind of freaky, and he also did like a joke book where she was having sex with Jeffrey's dog, or, you know, just, uh, he, he disrespects Misery, he hates her, which is very odd, because Misery made him rich and famous, um, but it was the kind of fame that I don't know if Paul wanted. I think he loved all the fame and success, of course, but one of the things we read about when Paul makes reference to his popularity with Misery is that he's successful with women who are kind of bratty, overzealous, they're demanding, and they just want more of her, more Misery. And Paul was like, no, I'm a serious artist. This book is pulp trash. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm over it. I'm an, I'm an artiste. And no, Misery's garbage. So why are you loving misery when you should be loving me is the vibe I got. And if we want to get really Twilight Zone with it, I'm telling you guys, this this novel just threw me for, for a loop in terms of analysis and comparisons and exploration, but I also think Misery Chastain could be a representation of cocaine because she is Paul's bread and butter. He wants to be rid of her, but he can't because the character of Misery provides so much fame and success. And so, side note, this is just really quick, um, <laughs> this is off script and totally for you guys. I've never done cocaine. I just never did it. Um, but I asked many friends who have, and I'll never forget a, a friend of mine said, when you take cocaine, it just feels like you're the coolest person in the room. And I, I just always held that in my mind, like, okay, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stack that away. And I did. And so as we're talking about cocaine so much and, uh, and this character comparison, it just feels very appropriate. So, um, is this accurate? Anybody who's done the yayo or <laughs> anyone who's, uh, had a little nose candy? Is this accurate? I judge not. I'm just really curious if, does it make you feel like a star? Is that, is that accurate where you just take it and you feel like you are, godlike and ruling the world. I'm assuming, I'm assuming. I, uh, yeah, I, I never did it myself, so I cannot say. I, uh, I don't know, but do you know? So, uh, right into the show, guys, and tell me of your past, uh, <laughs> tell me of your past dabblings. I would love to know. Um, but back on track, uh, I just think that it's very, uh, it's, I think it works. I think it's a likely and I think it's a comparison that works. Misery Chastain as cocaine because who is Paul Sheldon without misery, guys? She is his reason for success. She is also his reason for survival, right? She is what keeps him alive and she is the thread that kind of connects him to this desperate sort of Stockholm Syndrome bond to Annie Wilkes. I don't know if it gets super duper Stockholm Syndrome, but maybe towards the end. Um, but I, we've got, we've got 
this poor survivor Paul locked in between these two female entities. But I think as the story progresses, this is this is a rabbit hole for sure guys, but as the novel progresses, I think that they kind of blur into one female force that is killing him. Misery Chastain and Annie Wilkes form the destroyer goddess that is ripping out Paul's soul. It's so impressive, guys. Lots of dark feminine energy in this novel. That last one might require a tinfoil hat. I don't know, but think about it. Think about it. When you make your way through this novel, isolate these characters in your mind. Look at the way Misery Chastain is referred to. Look at how Annie refers to Misery and this sort of triad that's happening. I would love to know your thoughts. We have one more little character. This one is super cute, but very uh, necessary. Number four, it's not a character, but an object and an honorable mention with us here today as it is something that has a very strong, iconic, powerful presence. And that's Paul's used royal typewriter from Annie. So this thing has missing keys, particularly the N key, N is in Nancy, then the T key, T is in Tom, and then E as an elephant key. Um, so as the novel ticks down, we see the typed script uh, that's handwritten, that, which is why, again, once more, I think this is the fourth time I've blabbed this to you guys. Please make sure you have a physical copy of Misery to look through because it's amazing. But the typewriter is steel, it's black, it's heavy, and it's an object that creates quite the climactic finale, guys. I'm not going to ruin it, but oh wow was it good? So the expression, the pen is mightier than the sword is so applicable concerning this typewriter, guys. So yes, the Black Royal typewriter is a character in this novel. Its presence is felt and its significance is great. So before we head out of this section, guys, I have one last chunk of the novel I want to read to you because it's beautiful, and I think it sums up what I've been trying to spin here in regards to this really messed up triad between Annie, Paul, and Misery Chastain, and how they're all three interconnected. This is from page 256. Dark fell and no police came. Annie did not spend the time before it, before it did with Paul, however. She wanted to reglaze his bedroom window and pick up the paper clips and broken glass stand, scattered on the lawn. When the police come tomorrow looking for their missing lamb, she said, we don't want them to see anything out of the ordinary, do we, Paul? Just let them look under the lawnmower, kiddo. Just let them look under there and they'll see plenty out of the ordinary. But no matter how hard he tried to make his vivid imagination work, he could not make it come up with a scenario which would lead up to that. Do you wonder why I told you all of this, Paul? She asked before going upstairs to see what she could do with the window. Why I went into my plans for dealing with this in such great detail? No, he said wanly. Partly because I wanted you to know exactly what the stakes are and exactly what you'll have to do to stay alive. I also want you to know that I'd end it right now, except for the book. I still care about the book, she smiled. 
It was a smile that was both radiant and strangely wistful. It really is the best misery story of them all, and I do so much want to know how it all comes out. So do I, Annie, he said. She looked at him, startled. Why, you know, don't you? When I start a book, I always think I know how things will turn out, but I never actually had one end exactly that way. It isn't even out, but I never actually, or pardon me, <laughs> it isn't even that surprising once you stop to think about it. Writing a book is a little like firing an ICBM, only it travels over time instead of space. The book time the characters spend living in the story and the real time the novelist spends writing it all down. Having a novel end exactly the way you thought it would when you started would be like shooting a Titan missile halfway around the world and having the payload drop through a basketball hoop. It looks good on paper, and there are people who build those things, who tell you it was easy as pie, and even kept a straight face while they said it, but the odds are always against. Yes, Annie said, I see. I must have a pretty good navigation system built into the equipment because I usually get close, and if you have enough high explosive packed into the nose cone, close is good enough. Right now I see two possible endings to the book. One is very sad. The other, while not your standard happy Hollywood ending, at least holds out some hope for the future. Annie looked alarmed and suddenly thunderous. You're not thinking of killing her again. Are you, Paul? He smiled a little. What would you do if I did, Annie? Kill me? That doesn't scare me a bit. I may not know what's going to happen to Misery, but I know what's going to happen to me. And you. I'll write the end, and you'll read, and then you'll write the end, won't you? The end of us. That's one I don't have to guess at. Truth really isn't stranger than fiction, no matter what they say. Most times you know exactly how things are going to turn out. But I think I know which ending it's going to be. I'm about 80% sure. If it turns out that way, you'll like it. But even if it turns out the way I think, neither of us will know the actual details until I get them written down, will we? No, I suppose not. Do you remember what the old Greyhound bus ads used to say? Getting there is half the fun. Either way, it's almost over, isn't it? Yes, Paul said. Almost over. <laughs> so good, guys. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's just so loaded. It's so interconnected. All right, let's recap our characters. Number one is 42-year-old Paul Sheldon, our hero and survivor. Next, we have number two, 44-year-old Forrest Beast, evil witch, Annie Wilkes, and uh, she is our villain. And number three, our honorable mention, the young, beautiful foundling and lover of Ian and Jeffrey, the entirely fictional Misery Chastain. And number four, our honorable mention, the object of great power, Paul's royal typewriter. All right, guys, thank you so much as we explore this gut-wrenching story. Let's head into part four, where we are going to explore what's working in the story, what's not working in the story, and questions I have. I'll see you there.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, thank you for hanging on and sticking around through this analysis of Stephen King's misery. We have definitely reached a section I've been dying to get to, absolutely chomping at the bit to get here. Uh, this is the section I've been waiting for, and now that we've done all the housework on this novel, let's actually dive in to what makes it a success. So in this section, we're going to explore where I'm hungry for more information and questions I have. So my goal in the previous three sections was of course to shed some light on what's really strong in the story, what's unique as well as what's a little bit tricky, and I'm, I'm hoping that we're bringing something new to the table in regards to the misery discussion. Maybe not. We'll do our best. Uh, there's still lots to say and lots to uncover, and the deeper I go into this novel, the more I find, which is really, really good. But uh, I have a lot of reader connections that have bled over from other King works. I've mentioned narrative structure thus far, strong characters, etc. But let's get into my favorite parts where I looked at reader experience as a whole so that when I found myself closing this novel, I actually had a lot of admiration for King's choices. And because we always start with positivity in fiction, let's head straight for the positive and talk about what's really working in this novel. Number one, Annie's ending. Oh, oh man, guys. Oh man, was I a satisfied customer. Wowza. Oh my god. This is as epic and climactic as it can get, and I don't want to spoil too much, but let's just say this showdown is as physical as one can imagine, and I was all about it. After over 300 pages of nonstop torture, the little uh, unicorn gumdrop inside of me had morphed into a pillaging Saxon who simply wanted nothing but to chop off heads. And guys, I was murderous in my rage as a reader. I was so drained, so over it. And this was, at least thus far in my King journey, the best showdown I've ever read. Absolutely. This may be the best fight scene I've read thus far in, in King's work. So intense, so creepy, tremendously graphic, and the poetic justice of what goes down is level 10, guys. Oh my gosh. So I'm only going to mention one detail just because I found it so wonderful. It's so very strong, very full and overflowing of the come full circle kind of thing. Um, and it's definitely indicative of the beginning of Paul's saga, and that's the champagne. So at the beginning, of course, champagne is present in the hotel lobby with Paul. He's drinking it with such joy and possibility and life in his midst. And then, of course, he goes too far with it. It's present at the car accident. So the symbol of celebration actually unfolded into a great path of tragedy and doom. And yet, at the end we have another champagne bottle. It has shattered, it has spilled all over the floor, there's broken glass everywhere, 
and that spilled champagne has seeped into and saturated a few things, a few precious things, and oh my god, guys, just the, the poetry of it all. I would love to spill all the marbles out of the jar, but guys, this scene is so powerful, and I, I think if you are the reader and you slog through, trek through all of this awfulness, you deserve this last scene. Like all of the suffering, all of the pain, all of the psychological hell, this last scene is just, you deserve it. It's, it's absolutely like a tall glass of water. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to spoil it, but just know my inner Viking, the inner Viking that lives inside of Kim C that really thirsts for blood in terms of, of vengeance, very satisfied. The inner Viking totally had a smile on its face because Oh my god, guys, this villain deserved it. She deserved it. She deserved humiliation and rage and shock and all the ugliness she dished out. She got it back tenfold and I was on board. Yes. I saw this as a very satisfying ending for such a terrible villain. And you know what? We could have gone further. We could have added more if we wanted. Honestly, I, I think uh, maybe she could have gotten a taste of her own medicine and had something hacked off with a, with a rusty knife. I don't know. We could definitely throw more logs on the vengeance fire and it would have been okay with me most definitely. That's what happens when, when I'm put in a situation of prolonged torture. Um, yeah, I see a, a little bit red and the horns come out and they don't stop charging. But but I am a satisfied customer with how our villain exits the story. And I love, guys, that we have champagne at the start of this journey and the finish. There is a huge sense of completeness to it, a huge symbolic reckoning, just the payback and the full circle. I, I like I'm oh guys the drama the drama of it is off the charts and I enjoyed it quite a bit so number two in addition to what's working are strong symbols so what I really admire so much is King has some continuous metaphors some really strong symbols throughout the story um, and one of them is Africa. So we hear the word first in reference to a childhood memory where Paul is at the zoo with his mother and he observes this beautiful exotic bird in a cage and it was from Africa. That's what its little sign said. And this notion of Africa takes on a symbol for freedom and from it, it bleeds into the story to where, you know, he starts crafting it into Misery's Return. Um, and then the plot within Misery's Return heads to the actual continent of Africa. And then he kind of builds upon it. We get other strong symbols such as bees um, and drums. And bees symbolically in literature always carry the sign of infinity with them. They represent the life cycle and the evidence of the eternal. And drums, of course, are a powerful symbol for the 
beating heart. So we've got all kinds of life and death energy reverberating from Paul's circumstances, which have completely seeped into his fiction that's being forced out of him. It's being beaten and abused out of him. And of course, you know, all of this around the character of misery, uh, revolving around the continent of Africa, and then a dark goddess, a destroyer goddess who is the evil of Annie Wilkes. But I love that Africa is recurring throughout the novel and Paul utters it when he's in his catatonic hazes, when he's super drugged up, when he's just absolutely under the influence and we just have this lingering metaphor um, of Africa, Africa. And it represents a lot of things. It represents that caged bird. It represents the past. It represents the unknown future, um, this this dark unknown, uh, and so many things. It's a very, very rich symbol throughout, and it echoes very loudly and makes the text very rich. So those are my two. Those are the ones that um, uh, I just love so much. And then I know I mentioned it in other sections, but for maybe the fifth time in this episode, narrative structure, guys. Uh, we have a beautiful narrative structure, which um, we have four parts of the novel, and I believe the four parts are, if I can remember correctly, um, Paul, Annie, Misery, and oh gosh, I'm forgetting the the fourth one, of course. Of course, this always happens. Um, but the four parts of the novel are organized beautifully. The textual art we have inside, it, it's amazing. So make sure you check that out. Um, but I know I mentioned it in other places, but the narrative structure, I'll say it one more time. Let us now move on to what isn't working so well. And the first one that's just flying out of my mouth right now, guys, because I couldn't, this stopped me in my tracks when I read it, guys. It was one of those moments where I read the sentence like five times and I was like, oh my God, no. I was ripped immediately out of the story because it does not work. And that is uh, Andrew Pomeroy, the character of Andrew Pomeroy and Annie Wilkes as lovers. Um, Hell to the nope. That's what I say to that. So what we've got in the last third of the novel, uh, when things are really starting to reach the breaking point, is we find out there was a hitchhiker who Annie picked up named Andrew Pomeroy. Paul learns that he was a victim of Annie's axe and that they discovered him in the woods, you know, uh, not too far from here, pretty nasty stuff. Uh, yeah, and then Annie says they, the quote is, we were lovers, and I was just like, oh my god, no, uh, gross, no, it just doesn't work, because at this point in time, as I've kind of mentioned about Annie Wilkes, uh, in our character section, she's just the monster, guys, there's nothing human about her, there isn't. There's zero humanity, there's zero redemption. So I also, from what we learn about her, is uh, Paul views her as incredibly unattractive. She's completely insane. There doesn't seem to be anything healthy or remotely intriguing about her at all that would attract anybody sexually. And even there's a quote, of, like King has a funny quote that Paul makes about how could this guy have even got it? up for her because she's so grotesque. It doesn't work 
work. It doesn't work. I'm sorry. I, I call bullshit. Like, that's, that's how strongly I feel about that, guys. Like, no way in hell. No. What I would have believed and what I wish would have been the case or the actual story that went down is that maybe, you know, of course he's hitchhiking and she picked him up out of curiosity and uh, he did something that irritated her, made her angry, um, something. Like, uh, there's no way I could see Annie as in like um, an adventurous sexual being who attracted a wandering male on the road. No, no. BS. No way. It does not work. She is a heinous beast. She is the monster in the forest. She's the evil witch. King did not create her balanced and complex enough for that character portion to work. It just doesn't work. Like, it honestly ripped me right out of the book. There's no way in hell that... Nope. And to... I, I don't think I mentioned this. Andrew Pomeroy was a young boy. He was like 23. So, nope. Double nope. Triple nope. Quadruple hell to the no. It doesn't work. So, I don't... I know it's a small potato. It's a kind of a small thing. Um toward the latter, like, uh, last 50 pages of the novel, but it's strikingly jarring for me to where I was like, nope, this is, this is so wrong. This is so 10,000% wrong because we just don't have enough of Annie. We don't know what went down in her marriage to Mr. Dugan other than she's insane. And, you know, we, uh, uh, like, I'm honestly shaking my head right now, guys. That's how much this annoyed me because she, she says to Paul, we were lovers. The only thing I could have seen it, I could have, um, digested a little stronger is if she was, you know, the lover's part, if she's just cooking that up in her own crazy mind, uh, as in maybe nothing happened and this guy tried to escape for his life, but she wanted to love him or maybe he was nice to her or gave her a compliment because, you know, she picked him up off the road and he said, you're a nice lady, you know, that's sweet of you. And she's just like, oh, you're my lover. I could see that. I could absolutely see that. Uh, but of course we don't have a scene for that to work. We don't know. So all we have is is Annie saying we were lovers and I was just like nope no way in hell you're you're insane in not only are you insane but you are uh, a character that King has created to be uh, devoid of anything human or beautiful or empathetic or yeah you are not a normal person Annie so you are not having uh, promiscuous or wild sex with a hitchhiker. Nope, sorry, you're, no, it's not working. So I, I, I know I'm reacting a bit strongly to that, but that's how, at this point in the novel, at the point that we find, that we read this sentence, it's like laughably, eye-rollingly dumb, guys. Like, it just really ripped me out of the story. It just does not work. So I wish different choices would have been made with that, or I wish that Annie would have maybe articulated it differently, such as like, I wanted to love him and he wouldn't stay, or he kept um, something or other. But 
Yeah, it, it the way it's made to the way it's portrayed to the reader is that they live together for a while uh, in happy, wild hippie bliss, just uh, fornicating in the woods, and she started to get annoyed by him and was snooping around. No, it, it is so dumb, guys. It is so laughably dumb. It doesn't work. No, I force. I I see it. The only way it works is if Annie maintains the vein of evil monster and that she, you know, he was probably injured, knocked on her door, asked for, you know, some water and a cracker or something, some food, and she pounced on him like a mountain lion. And then that, that's the only plausible way it works because we were lovers. I was like, no, no, nope. Sorry, Steve, not working at all. So that's, uh, that's my first one. And then the second one we have it's a love-hate, um, but it's the Shahrazad metaphor. It's the continuous uh, mentioning and symbol of Shahrazad. So this one's big, guys. So I I need to explain to you about Shahrazad simply because it's very very important to understanding why it's mentioned in the story so much. Um, but I also disagree with why and how King uses it because it's too complex and the the reader needs more data because right now King is being a little elitist. Okay, so let me back up just a little bit. So in throughout the novel, throughout Misery, Paul consistently makes reference to Scheherazade. So Scheherazade is a character in a collection of stories from the Middle East, and it's a very famous collection called A Thousand and One Nights. So some of you might know about it and some of you might not, um, which is why I don't feel it's successfully coming across. But anyway, A Thousand and One Nights, it is about, if I remember correctly, let's, let's jog my memory here, King, ugh, I'm gonna butcher his name. Please forgive me. It's it's Shaharar, Shasharar. Um, please forgive me. We can call him King S. But he is the all-powerful king or sultan of the region, and he had a wife betray him, and it broke his heart and kind of drove him mad. And so, for a good long chunk of time, he marries a woman every day and kills her at dawn. Uh, because he hates women so much, he just decides to become a misogynist, and he's like, all women are awful, and I just want to hurt and kill them all. This is a really effed up story, um, now that I think about it, but we're just gonna, we're just gonna, just stay with me here. But anyway, so, um, after a while, there's, there's not enough virgin brides out there, because he's murdered them all, so the Hand of the King says, well, there's no more women in the towns, we've ransacked the land. And, uh, but I, I guess if you need a wife, I, I mean, I don't want to die because you'll kill me if I don't provide you a lady. So why don't you use my daughter? So he serves up his own child, which is the beautiful Scheherazade. And this gal is foxy and smart and she knows she's gonna die. She knows what happens when you sign up to be the king's bride. So girlfriend's hella smart and what she does is she arranges, oh god, I know this is kind of, it's, uh, I know I'm getting some of this wrong, guys, so if any of you are scholars 
<laughs> of um, Middle Eastern folk tales or folklore, please forgive me in abundance here, but I, I don't exactly know how it goes down, but a friend comes to say goodbye and they're saying goodbye because it's going to be sunset soon and she only has the night to live because in by the time the sun rises her head's going to get chopped off so she's telling her her friend a story and it, it's this amazing story but she doesn't know or maybe she does because she's a smart cookie mr s mr king shaharar is listening to this story she's telling her friend he's super into it and then shortly before the morning light she says okay no more story but she's not done with the story so of course the king's like what's gonna happen next and she's like well you'll have to find out by tonight and so the king spares her life and each night she tells the king of the story and then another story after that but she always stops before dawn breaks and so because the king is consistently wanting to know what happens in the story he spares her life and guess what she does this for can you guess a thousand and one nights so she tells thousands of stories to the king and of course after all this time of listening to her stories by night he's madly in love with her and after a thousand and one nights she's run out of tales bless her she's run out of stories to tell him um so she's like that's all i got and of course by that point he's madly in love with her and marries her and makes her his queen and no more murder but for the compilation within so, in the story collection of A Thousand and One Nights, we've got Aladdin and the Magic Lamp, we've got Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, The Legend of Sinbad, so hopefully those are familiar to a few of you guys, but all of these tales have been compiled across the globe from India, Africa, China, all the places. Um, but the thing is, let's come back to reality, Shahrazad was in danger of dying every single night, every single day, you know, well, really every single night, her life just hung by a thread, but the power of story saves her. Okay, right, so that took a minute for me to explain to all y'all, right? So King just assumes you know that story, right? He just assumes you know about Shahrazad and King Sharar and the Thousand and One Stories, the Thousand and One Nights. Like, guys, this is a very, very loaded, loaded metaphor. So for me, it doesn't really work that he inserts it left and right into this novel and uh, Paul consistently refers to himself as Shahrazad, that he is the Shahrazad because she had to write a story to save her neck, literally. Like, she had to make stuff up to keep the sword from chopping her head off every single day. And so once you understand this, it definitely works in the story, of course, but who's gonna look that up? You know, like, that's... I don't know. It just... I Maybe... If for me, I was kind of like, it took me out of the story because I know the story of Shahrazad, but 
not everybody does. And so I was thinking to myself, what if I didn't know about Shahrazad? Like, what if I had zero clue about A Thousand and One Nights? I don't know if, I think I would be bothered by this. I think I would kind of be annoyed. Granted, maybe King just wants you to pop open an encyclopedia, which is what you would have had to do back in 1987, because where was your search engine? Where was your, you know, search your browser that would go lightning speed to give you all this so that's the thing if i was a reader in 1987 i would be like the hell is this what is shahrazad why does he keep talking about this what is going on so i was kind of questioning that a little bit guys i was thinking to myself it is a beautiful metaphor it is a beautiful comparison and an illusion to make but it's not working if you don't know the story of Shahrazad and the Thousand and One Nights. So I was kind of like, uh, maybe we should have pumped the brakes on this because he uses it a lot, a lot. Like, I think we probably have over 50 times Shahrazad is mentioned. Um, so for me, I was like, you know, I like it, but I have the privilege of knowing this story, and you know, and I think we all do, at least now, uh, we're able to look it up really quick and learn about it, but it was, uh, I don't know, something about it was making me think of readers in the past and, and how that might have been challenging for them to connect it. So I, I wish it would have been mentioned less, because it's a heavy metaphor, it's consistent, and if you don't know the story of Shahrazad, I wonder if it kind of was odd for you. So let me know what you guys think. Uh, maybe you were fine with it. Maybe it's fine. Maybe Shahrazad is taught in schools around the globe, but it's definitely not taught here in the States. So I was uh, concerned about that one. And then number three, the, uh, we, let's see if we had, um, number two is Andrew Pomp, what am I saying? Number one is Andrew Pomeroy and Annie as lovers. Number two is Shahrazad. And our third is the ending for Paul, guys. So I know that I mentioned how much I loved the ending for Annie. I did like that one, but I was not crazy about the ending for Paul. So, and this is because, guys, um, it's intensely dark, guys. It is intensely depressing, foreboding, completely missing of all hope and light. It is devoid of all of those things, and that is really extreme for the reader, really extreme for the reader's heart, and um, it's a dark ending, guys. It's such a dark ending, and I am really eager to discuss this with Justin Kendra about maybe how we would have brought a little bit of sunshine into it or if the dark ending works, but the final moments we have with Paul is, it ripped my heart out, guys, it really did. Um, this guy is absolutely consumed by post-traumatic stress disorder. He is drowning in it. He is drowning in the withdrawal symptoms of his opioid addiction that was forced upon him by Annie Wilkes. He is completely insane with what has happened in terms of racked with anxiety, depression, and this guy needs a team of therapists, guys. He needs to be in daily therapy for the next three years. 
minimum to in order to achieve a normal life or any kind of normalcy like that would be the first thing I would have done after all of my corrective surgeries is I would have hired a team of mental health professionals um like every hour I would be in therapy like oh my god um and so our final moments with Paul wow guys um very sad tremendously sad and there is zero hope and so um 50 percent of me is okay with it just because this novel is a nightmare of an experience and maybe he just felt like throwing a bucket of ice water on the reader um in terms of a shocking twist of something sunny wouldn't be fitting or i have no idea what he was thinking because as we know with king's writing style he kind of lets the story unfold on its own the way it feels comfortable at that time. He always writes about how when he's composing a novel, he's discovering the novel. So I trust his choices as an author, but at the same time, I just shake my head. I was like, oh my God, this is so damn dark. This is so damn dark. Like if you were, this would be, yeah, it's the, it's like you're just sitting on the edge of the cliff and like by that final page you're like might as well jump now like there's there's absolutely zero hope um and i think that bothered me a little bit because after such a tremendously horrific ordeal that this novel is it didn't have to be a sunshine rainbows ending i wasn't really asking for that but i just needed a tiny flicker a glimmer of something a silver lining somewhere that paul could he was gonna be okay you know like um but i again this is a horror novel i definitely i I know it is so i guess it works but oh guys this was just too much for my heart so for me i'm not crazy about the ending for paul i get it i get it i respect it i get it um i'm just oh i just shake my head guys so let's finish up this section with two-ish, three-ish questions. Number one, what happened to Annie's brother, Paul? So guys, this is huge. This is such a huge thing and we have nothing. We have zero information on this. Absolute zero. We have nothing, nothing, nothing. And this is so, this really bothers me because this is such a huge thing, guys. Um, We find out that Annie has a brother named Paul, and Paul Sheldon is the one she's torturing and slowly killing and driving insane, and so we don't have any information aside from the scene I mentioned earlier in the episode. Okay, so what happened to Paul? Um, Is he alive? Do you hate Paul? Do you love Paul? Was there a grossly inappropriate relationship between your brother Paul? What happened and I think we really needed more of this because uh it influences the way Annie views Paul Shelton right she has this brotherly she has a brother uh this brotherly relationship that she mentions but yet the reader doesn't know much about it at all so it's like this lingering mystery of like what the hell happened was it a perfectly okay relationship with brother Paul I have scoured the text and I may have missed it so if I did miss a 
blatantly obvious detail that's right in front of my face on like chapter two or something, please let me know. I will happily retract my thoughts on this, but guys, we got nothing on Brother Paul and that is not okay because that is a hugely influential component to how she's treating Paul to this whole mess. So what the hell happened? I don't know. Question number two, and this one has been bugging me forever, forever, forever. Um, why did Paul Sheldon name his main character Misery? Okay, guys, um, what's going on with this? Because I looked up the definition of Misery wondering if there's anything that's uh, a positive connotation about it at all. There is nothing. Misery is nothing but negative. All definitions are a negative thing. So it's like, okay, um, what we learned about Misery Chastain is that she was a foundling and that she's alive in the 1860s of, and I think it sounds like it's either Ireland or the England, some, you know, sort of maybe Wales, I don't know um, exactly Misery's origins, but Dunthorpe and all of these towns she's from, it sounds uh, Celtic, so we'll, we'll put it there, but like, okay, she's a foundling, so maybe she just was unloved, unwanted, and that's somebody was terrible and awful and named her Misery, and she didn't change that, like, ugh, I mean, maybe there's something uh, extra to it, but the fact that this character's name is Misery Trustine, it's like, uh, why? Why did you call her that? Like, that's such a perplexing detail for me, because this is, which leads me into question three, why is Paul a romance novelist, right? So we have this character, Misery Chastain, and it sounds like, and it looks like, especially when we talk about the film, that Misery's books are rooted in romance. So why did Paul go that way, you know? So I feel like that was an unexplored portion of Paul's character in terms of his writing identity. Like, was was the story of misery like something you wrote while you were super drunk in college one time and you wrote it as a joke and then all these women loved it and you just decided to roll with it but you were writing it as a joke? Like, was it something like that? Because Paul is mysterious, right? He's twice divorced. He doesn't seem to have a good relationship with women. Um, he, you know, seems like a dedicated bachelor. He doesn't like his female fans who adore misery. He finds them annoying. He finds them stupid. So I, I really wanted to explore this to a greater degree because Paul, as a writer, as a creative force in this story, it's like, okay, we, we get that writing is something that you put your heart and soul into, but why in the hell did you write a romance novel then? Like, why did you decide? I, it, that's what I want to know more about. Like, because if it was a joke, that would make so much sense. Like, if it was just a fluke thing, like, I'm writing a story about a character named... But it, no, it sounds like you really put your heart and soul into these stories, into these characters. You really worked at it. So it's like, okay, maybe you wanted to write a no romance novel, and maybe you were always attracted to that genre as a young reader. So basically for me, guys, like a male romance novelist... I mean, 
Paul Sheldon, from what I'm understanding, he's like the Nicholas Sparks of his day. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with that when we, you know, of course, not gendering it, genderizing it too much, but it's like, uh, I think Nicholas Sparks is perfectly content with the subjects he writes, right? He seems absolutely in love with that kind of fiction and he's a deeply feeling person and a deeply feeling creative type but Paul seems like he hates it and he wrote a novel about a car thief um, the Fast Cars manuscript which of course um, Manny makes him destroy because it's a bad book or a bad novel so I really wanted to know more about Paul as writer and why is he a romance novelist and why in the hell do you have have a character named Misery. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. And the only thing I could think of was that it actually means nothing. And Steve King was kind of like, I just want to have a kind of not double entendre, but uh, I want a, a dual symbol here. I want Misery to be the character that's consuming him, and then I want it to be his devastating reality. I want two aspects of misery to dominate and swallow this poor man whole. <laughs> so that's all I could think of, guys. And so I have some questions about that. So let's recap uh, what we kind of uh, went over here. So what's working in this lovely, crazy, insane 1987 slice of insanity is Annie's ending. I loved it. My God, I loved it. Um, this number two, the strong symbols, particularly of Africa, the caged bird, the bees, the dark goddess. We've got some really beautiful symbols uh, in the Misery's return fiction, as well as Paul's own subconscious and his dream state, his lingering um, reflections, his sort of inner thoughts. We've got a lot of rich stuff going on in there. I loved it. What isn't working so well? Number one, Andrew Pomeroy and Annie as lovers. 10,000 times no. It is stupid. It just doesn't work for me at all. Um, number two, Shahrazade, her beautiful, exotic self. Nope. It just... I love it. I love the story. Of course, it's fantastic. The metaphor is very strong. However, <laughs> if you don't know about Shahrazad, this is going to be lost and this is not going to connect. And I feel it was probably lost on a lot of people and maybe overly done. Number three, ending for Paul. Oh, so sad. So, so sad. Too much sad. And then my questions. What happened with Annie's brother? Guys, Paul. Uh, Mr. Paul Wilkes, I need to know because that is huge and we don't have any data on that. Number two, why did Paul name his character Misery? And number three, why is Paul a romance novelist? Mr. Sheldon, we need to know uh, what went down with that. So those are what I have for this section, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out. 
please let me know your thoughts on this section. I know we covered quite a few things, but what are the areas of misery that you're not so fond of? What are the parts that you really liked that you think I should give a second look at? And of course, if I did miss something, especially in the questions section, please reach out and let me know ASAP. So uh, that way I won't continue walking around in ignorance. We don't want that. Uh, so thank you in advance for your help. But let's head into our final section of misery where we're going to talk about the 1990 Rob Reiner film starring Kathy Bates and James Caan. I'll see you there. Hello, dear listeners, and thank you so much for slogging through the oogie mess that is this episode's analysis of Misery, the 1987 title from our beloved Stephen King. This is part five. We have made it to the end, so bless all of you for trudging through the snow on broken legs to get here. I wanted to go hard with this title. This is a huge King work, and we needed to squeeze all the juice out of it and press down and get everything we can out of this title because this is a major hitter, guys. This is a big power player and we have to do justice by, um, yeah, getting everything we can out of misery. So I wanted, of course, to talk about the 1990 film because of course, of course, of course, this is so important in the King universe. It's a really iconic film and performance and I did want to talk about it. I had seen parts of it over the years, just bits and pieces on TV, of course the grossest and most frightening parts I've seen. But I actually saw it for the very first time in its entirety just the other day after I finished the novel. Uh, right after I closed the book, I was like, oh my god, okay, let's just get through it and watch the movie and be done with misery. Um, because. Uh, as I've kind of mentioned throughout this episode, guys, there's lots to admire about this novel, especially concerning the dark feminine, the symbols, there's a lot of genius at work here. Madness and genius, of course. So there is a lot to celebrate, but at the same time, this was the most horrifying uh, King experience I've ever had thus far. <laughs> More on that in a little bit. But the movie, guys. Um, so this was a pretty big commercial success and I believe aside from uh, some of the other like Green Mile, Shawshank, I think this is the only one to award a best actress or a best actor performance in a King adaptation. I'm pretty sure. Might be wrong on that so let me know if I did screw that one up but Kathy Bates really solidified her stance as a Hollywood powerhouse after this role, guys. She is terrific. Terrific. We're going to talk about that, but she won Best Actress for her portrayal as portrayal 
of Annie Wilkes. So she is 42 years old, Kathy Bates, when she's portraying Annie, which I believe Annie herself was 44. And then James Kahn, who I adore, and all the Godfather fans out there hopefully feel the same. He's just as cool as cool could be. I love James Kahn, but he was around 50 years old when he played J um, the role of Paul Sheldon. And what's really interesting when I was looking up the title, Misery, the film, a lot of actors declined on this. Like pretty much every heavyweight actor in the late 80s, early 90s was like, nope, I pass, thanks. And I wonder why, other than the fact they felt like they wouldn't be seen as wouldn't be able to show their true acting chops while in a somewhat invalid state by lying in bed and I don't know, but I'm I'm really glad that they chose James Caan. He's he brings the attitude for sure and that New York sort of screw you vibe that I really love. Um, but there are of course lots of changes to the screenplay. However, visually, I'm really pleased with the adaptation. So I know I talk about this with other film adaptations, but I'm such a sucker for good setting and good costumes, guys. And I know that those seem relatively small in comparison to the story and the performances but it's important like the way something visually translates is huge for your imagination and for me Annie's house and the and Paul's room and the snow of the the forest and the little town it's working and it's completely bringing to life the terrible place I was just in for 300 pages so really am pleased with the visual depiction of the novel I think it works beautifully and I'm really I was very pleased uh, by the certain, by the choices they made, the costumes, um, the key moments that they pulled right from the book, the fact that they made the novel capsules or novel bright orange, um, really iconic scenes with burning the manuscript and his just Annie's decor style. Um, I also like some of the things they added to her character and to her home. She has a shrine of the misery novels and Paul Sheldon. She's a huge Liberace fan, which is really funny, but what I liked about the novel, uh, pardon me, what I like about the film is, of course, the visual components, setting, costumes. I like that we see Paul's legs. That was kind of creepy. And I don't know about you guys, but watching the film, it definitely came across as more of a suspense movie for me rather than horror. Um, we do have a little bit of gore toward the end, but I'm sorry, guys, for me, Misery, the novel, is pure horror. Like, the most horrifying novel from start to finish. Um, but I think the film starts off definitely more in the tone of suspense, and this is because Annie Wilkes, when we meet her, she is just Susie Sunshine. She is sweet and feminine and pretty, and she has this lovely high voice and this la sweetness that our main novel version of Annie Wilkes does not have. And it was interesting because when I was reading the novel, of course I've seen clips from the movie, so naturally I was imagining Kathy Bates as Annie, but then 
Fortunately, the ugliness and the terror of Annie changed in my mind and Kathy was honestly too pretty and too feminine and too sweet and she kind of morphed in my mind and I imagined Annie Wilkes in my mind to be much bigger than Kathy Bates in size, to have a much less feminine face, more hard, more androgynous, uh, more frightening and uh, uh, not as feminine or sweet as, of a voice. Like she really became a monster for me because that is how I viewed her in the novel. Um, whereas in the film, they show Annie as like an obsessed fan who might go a little too far and she maybe starts to make some poor choices when she's lying to Paul, telling him that, oh, the phone is dead, uh, the, this snowstorm, gosh, and these roads just need to get plastic and in a few more days, you know, she she tries to play Good Samaritan and tries to play this role of like, I'm definitely gonna, gonna uh, get you to the hospital ASAP, you know, and that sunshininess um, fills Paul or James Caan's depiction with hope and uh, we do not have that in the novel, guys. So that's a big difference is the suspense versus horror in, in the novel versus film. Uh, when you read the book, guys, at least for me, the tone is nothing but ominous from moment one. There is zero hope and Annie never promises. She just kidnaps and, you know, imprisons Paul and that's that. There's no hope of escape. It is terrible as terrible can be. So a couple things that they added in the film is, which this one I don't understand why they did, but so Paul has a daughter, never see her, never hear of her, she doesn't even have a name. Also, instead of three misery novels, there are eight, which I don't feel works well just because, um, you know, Paul is, is sick of misery and he doesn't take it seriously. He wants to be a serious writer, and eight books is a long time. That's a long time to be hating a character. So I don't feel it works with the character of Paul Sheldon to have so many books, um, but uh, we'll see. Um, I, I suspended my disbelief for sure. The other thing that I noticed the change between book and film is with our opener uh, of Paul getting a little too drunk with the, well, basically making a really bad choice of uh, going on a rip wild adventure with champagne in a fast car in the snow. Uh, it seems in the film that Paul is not exactly impaired. Like he had a glass of champagne as is his personal ritual after finishing the novel, but he's not wasted. He's not even remotely tipsy and he just seems like he's enjoying the drive and the snow creeps up on him and he crashes. So it kind of uh, deviates away from what I really like about Misery on it being something about punishment uh, in regards to making a poor choice and landing in the wolf's mouth. So, uh, yeah, so that was interesting. Paul just, he seemed like, oh, I just got caught in the snow and I crashed. So I think that's a little bit more accessible for uh, viewers who haven't read Misery, but if you're a reader of Misery, it's a little different and less dark, or pardon me, darker, I should say. The film is less dark with the opening, whereas the novel is just hopeless from moment one. 
Um, the other thing that I kind of wish the film would have done a little more, and I don't really know if King talked about this in the novel, but we know that Paul in the book is with Annie for months. Like, he's approximating like February, March when he crashed his car, and then he's not he's still there typing the novel by the first day of summer in late June. So we're there a really long time. And I wish that they would have done something with facial hair for Paul in the book in terms of him growing a beard or needing a haircut or something to where the passing of time was on his face because with Paul Sheldon in the movie, James Caan has a electric razor that Annie gives him from the general store or whatever. So he's clean shaven every day and it's like, uh, you know, uh, all kind. I don't, yeah, I kind of wish that the passing of time would have shown a little more on his face uh, or him looking bedraggled, him having five o'clock shadow or a beard so the other big area of the film that I enjoy but at the same time I kind of wish they would have scrapped it is we have a completely made-up character of uh, Buster the sheriff and his wife Virginia and I love Buster because he's played by uh, Richard Farnsworth who's a favorite actor of mine if you are a fan of the and of Green Gables series um, the the Canadian uh, film version of and of Green Gables he plays Matthew Cuthbert Cuthbert and he's magical and so I've always adored Richard Farnsworth for being Matthew, the character of Matthew Cuthbert, but I'm uh, super obsessed with his sweet old man Santa Claus demeanor and he is on a detective hunt for Paul Sheldon because he believes uh, he was pulled out of his car, he might still be alive. So we all of a sudden have this detective thread going through the novel, which again, or pardon me, going through the film, which uh, takes away from the horror of the novel, of course, and makes the film more of a suspense thing because we as the the viewer are are hoping we're like oh my god he's gonna find Paul you know he's gonna eventually detect him at Annie's house and he's gonna find him unfortunately what I hate about the film is that this sweet precious man is a source of comedic relief with his wife Virginia and they're just this cute married couple and this this lovely sheriff who's not bothering anybody and he gets straight up murdered in cold blood by Annie and uh, pardon any spoilers, but uh, it's jarring and shocking. And why would you, I mean, granted we, I know that why the film did it was to really solidify just how evil Annie is, but it was like, why did, oh my God, why did you do that to that poor man? Like that, that was, that was rough. That was actually really rough because that guy was just such a source of light and brevity and hope. And uh, yeah, he was gone in a flash and it was very tragic, very sad. So I actually thought the film maybe went a little too far with that or maybe I like, why did he have to get, 
why do you have to die? I wish he could have survived or at least sort of been, you know, um, mortally wounded or not mortally wounded, but maimed or, or something where he, he could have, I don't know. He was such a sweet man. <laughs> so the fact that he died so suddenly and so violently was pretty shocking for me. Um, I also love that we have in the movie another legend, Lauren Bacall. She is Paul's literary agent, Marcia Sindel. So she was pretty cool. So I did love the literary agent aspect of that, which we did not get to see too much in the novel. So I like that we have a snapshot of Paul's world as a best-selling author and his New York City life. So I really did uh, enjoy that it showed that. Um, so of course, the novel being pure terror and uh, opening up the mouth of hell, uh, the novel is insanely violent and graphic, guys, especially with what Annie does to Paul, which if you've read the book, you know there is an axe involved and there's lots of amputation. There are more than one amputations, which is, oh my god, it's so bad. Um, that is one of the, the scene that you're thinking about and that I'm talking about is oh my god like it's it's glued in my brain forever guys that is the most <sighs> amazingly written because I love how King did it with um just the creepiness of it all uh of the hypodermic needle so Paul's in and out of consciousness but again the beta dying the blowtorch like oh my god like the the macabre terror, the grotesque horror of what happens and the way it's described is out of body insane. Um, but of course the film does not go that dark and instead of an axe we have a mallet uh, or I, it's not a hammer. I think a mallet would be an appropriate term for it. Um, it's not a croquet mallet. That would have been gnarly but we already used croquet mallets in The Shining now didn't we? So we can't go there. But um it definitely uh, still gets the point across, but nowhere near as violent as the scene in the novel. Um, the film, like the hobbling scene, James Kahn's screams are probably the worst part of it, but the actual uh, violence against Paul in the bed with the mallet, it's like... I think, oh my god, I barely blinked because the book was so much worse for me, guys. The film is, it's still terrible and it's still incredibly uncomfortable, but like it's no, it could not touch the terror of the book for me. And so I, I barely batted an eyelash at the movie just because the novel has scarred me for life. <laughs> um, but I, I was hoping just, I think, well, I'm getting off on a tangent, but my favorite scene. My favorite Annie moment in the film, the one that I think was done the best from Kathy's performance, is when she comes in, it's a rainy afternoon, and she's very depressed. And this is that part in the novel where she tells Paul she's going to go to her laughing place, but she's she's very down. She's looking rough. She looks just unwashed, unkempt. Her eyes are swollen. She is looking rough and just her voice and the cadence and she's very lucid and she looks at Paul and says, I know you don't love me, so don't even try to fool me or joke around. So there's this haunted lucidity there and clarity that's dark and 
that was she it's, it's amazing so I actually I love Kathy Bates performance but for me I think I was wishing that it would have been darker I, I think she I I didn't want to see sunny a sunny sweet Annie when Annie is always a monster so I I was looking for less of a a sweet obsessed fan at the start and I was looking for a grotesque ogre from moment one so I wanted Kathy to look worse than she did really um, so I guess what I'm saying guys is I think that I like the film misery I like it but it's a suspense film it's a suspense and this is a horror novel and so we I think need although it would be insanely too much but like look at the saw movies it actually wouldn't like we have saw we have all kinds of torture porn movies like it's fine it'll it can be adapted but i think i think we need a darker annie wilkes actually i love kathy bates performance and the transformation and that the shift of her when after she reads Misery's Child and she comes in and she starts screaming and just flipping out and we see that eruption, it, it's great. It, it is really, really well done. It's very good. But I, I, I don't know, this book was such a nightmare come to life for me that Annie, I wanted, I did not want any Susie Sunshine at all. I wanted the monster from moment one. So I would, even though it's such a hard performance to beat because Kathy set the bar so high, I think that we can go darker. You know, I would like to see um, if you guys are familiar with the actress Cherry Jones, she's amazing. Uh, she does film and Broadway. She's absolutely incredible. Someone of her caliber to do Annie. Um, I, I would, I believe this has already been on Broadway as well. So I, I'm curious to see what a 21st century adaptation would look like. Uh, really channeling and nourishing the horror of of the novel and this is because it is a horror book guys it's probably the most horrifying thing i've ever read from king um but the film is a suspense and i i like it i appreciate many things about it um but there is something about the dark fairy tale nature that i am observing in the novel misery that it is completely encapsulating the reader in the pain of battling addiction and battling in a defeating, suffocating, crippling force like cocaine, like heroin, like alcoholic. Um, and so I think that's where the power of the horror of the novel comes from. And with the movie, I, I'm not, it's missing a little bit. It's missing a little bit. I would have liked to have seen uh, Paul Sheldon or James Caan looking way rougher than he does. His bruises heal pretty quick. You know, he's he's still the same weight as he is throughout the entire film. So it even shows him eating like several course meals because Annie, you know, keeps him pretty well fed with lovely meals. Um, and so it's like that never, no, like he was tortured. He was absolutely tortured and barely ate and he was he was the walking dead like he was absolutely 
a shadow of a man. So I, I appreciate the suspense adaptation, but when you look at the novel in comparison to the film, there's just no contest. Guys, we need like to descend several levels into the depths of doom in order to channel the, the pain and the horror of the book. So but nevertheless, I love James Caan. He's just so cool. And Kathy Bates is incredible. And her performance is very special. Um, the look of her is, I think, too pretty. But I do love the costumes. I do love uh, her home. I love the setting, the the decorations, um, or set design. That's what I was looking for. I was like, that's decorations is not the word I wanted to use. Set design, that's what I wanted. Um, but overall, I, I'm glad it exists. I, I am, and I think I would check it out again if ever it's on TV. I will let it play, but I would really be intrigued if we have a new Misery film that is a horror film, um, because I don't feel this, the 1990 Rob Reiner one is, even though it might be classified as one, no. It, for me, it is not. So I would, I, I think we could maybe find another Annie Wilkes who's not as attractive, who's more frightening, who is more violent. And I would like to see the physical changes of Paul, like the, I, I want to see Paul looking like a POW survivor, right? Like we want, I want to see a haggard and bedraggled Paul. And I also want to see the passing of time more on Paul's face and body. So I think we need some serious deterioration in order to drive home the suffering. So those are my thoughts on the novel. There's lots, or pardon me, the, the movie. Those are my thoughts on the film. I, I did enjoy it. I love that. Um, Paul is a frequent guest of Silver Creek and that's how, you know, Annie found him and got entangled in being a stalker and a creeper. Um, but I much prefer the book, of course, we always do, but I much prefer what King is doing in the novel, which is creating uh, a tale of, of suffering and consequence and madness and survive, survival. So those are some thoughts there. So let's let's uh, start our exit from this amazingly lengthy exploration of the novel Misery, but I'm just gonna say farewell with a couple final thoughts. Um, once more, a tremendous thank you to Jess and Kendra, hosts of Palaver Unraveling Weird Lit. We're gonna start recording on Sunday in, in regards to our exploration as a trio of the novel misery but without those gals my friends uh, no way would I have even cracked open the book I have been scared of this title my whole life I really have there's something about it it's associated with my dad who I love to pieces and he always just it was as if my dad was protecting me from this book my whole life but I'm actually really excited to talk about it with my dad here coming up when I see him next and um yeah because uh, there's I believe my mom told me that my dad had nightmares when he read this book he woke up in the night gasping and uh I'm a little I'm a little two-year-old I'm a little baby when this was published so this is uh, 
<sighs> lots to talk about. This one is deeply rooted in my past and I'm I'm very proud that I finished it because I didn't think I was going to be able to, guys. This was an extremely emotional read for me. Very powerful, very painful. And I am happy <laughs> I finished it. I think in the future I will never be able to read it again in its entirety. I mean, never say never, of course, but I foresee myself only thumbing through it, thumbing through certain parts, looking for um, passages I liked, symbols that I remember. I don't think I can do it again from start to finish because this thing ripped my heart out of my body, guys. Like, I felt like all of myself, all of my emotional health just got ran over by the lawnmower. That's uh, that's how it felt. It felt like I got tossed into a wood chipper of, of pain and suffering, sorrow, hopelessness, and uh, wanting to die right next to Paul. And that's a, that's a deep, depth to sink to. So if any of you are particularly sensitive at this time, after the year we've had, please be cautious entering into reading Misery if you haven't done it. Uh, it is extremely dark and extremely uh, depraved and depleted of hope and light. And I did one more thing on the film. I liked how it is a sunny ending for Paul. We do see him in a snazzy suit and tie and he's at a restaurant with his literary agent and he is not the haunted, tormented, broken man who we see at the end of the novel. So I was glad to have a sunny ending for Paul at the end of the film because the novel is dark, my friends. This is as dark as I think it can get. But I'm proud I finished it. So grateful to Justin Kendra. We're going to record a couple more fun things and explore misery a bit more. So I will include the links to their show and uh, mention where we're all gathered together and talking about misery. So stay tuned for that. In the next couple weeks, uh, be on the lookout for my next novel analysis, which is number two in the Dark Tower, Drawing of the Three. I've got my copy here right now next to me. I'm ready to crack it open and continue on with Roland's journey. So I am so thrilled to get as far away from Sidewinder as I can. I need to, I need to hang out with Roland again. I do. I need to, uh, whew, I need to get to the land of the living and, uh, I need to be far away from Horror King right now, guys. So, once more, if you're in a gentle frame of mind and you need to be delicate with yourself, I encourage that you don't read Misery at this time. Wait until you're feeling a little stronger. However, I also am a firm believer of hair of the dog books. So I don't know, let's say your heart's broken or you lost somebody and you're really nihilistic and you hate everything and you know, wanna be in a uncomfortable place uh yeah crack it open crack it open because you'll be more resilient to it than you think so uh however you know 
please take my advice with a grain of salt. So uh, be gentle with yourselves and tread carefully with this novel, especially now. It's a rough one. Um, but thank you guys so much. This was a big one. This is a big episode. So if you made it to this point, many hugs to you. Thank you guys for listening. As always, you can say hi on the socials at underrated SK pod. We're on Insta. We're on Twitter. We are not on TikTok, so you won't find me there, but everywhere else, please say hi. Also, I would love to hear from you right into the show at underratedsk at gmail.com. I would love to know your thoughts on any of the previous novels I've covered in the podcast thus far, any of your thoughts on Misery that I might have missed or that you want to add more uh, info to in terms of my analysis or my absorption of the information. I'm always all ears. I love talking about King, especially the, the difficult ones, the scary ones, all that good stuff. So thank you all so much and I will see you soon. Bye-bye.